Hello and welcome once again to Inside Jobs, the regular podcast where we meet creative leaders and try and find out what makes them tick. Brought to you by IHAF, the leading professional association for in-house agencies, and Express KCS, the content production provider that's at the ready to meet in-house agencies' creative production needs. Now, Laurie Sciada apparently didn't have a plan. Well, if that's true, it goes to show that being an accidental tourist can still really get you places. She's worked for herself, she's worked for consumer brands, she's started an agency, and she's worked for some of the biggest B2B brands you can imagine. A talented creative, she seems to effortlessly navigate large corporations and has done so very successfully, as you're going to hear. Laurie, welcome to Inside Jobs. Yeah, that's great, Robert. Uh, however you say it is fine. I think we go by Humana here in the States. We had a call a little while ago just to discuss this interview, and you called yourself an accidental tourist, and I'm I'm really keen to find out more about why. But but just before we do, can you just quickly tell us uh, where you're working, what you do, Laurie? Yeah, I am uh, Associate Vice President at Humana, um, and I run the in-house agency that we call The Hive. I've uh, been here about two and a half years now, and uh, I think we've been through uh, a lot of changes in the marketing organization, uh, including my team. So it's been a it's been quite a journey over the last two and a half years, but it's, uh, it's great to be a part of a, an org that's growing and and changing and trying to make an influence on the healthcare, healthcare industry. Yeah, absolutely. How big's the team you've got now? We're 55 full time, but we have a, a, a variable staff that fluctuates uh, with demand. I don't know how many contractors we have on board right now, probably about six, seven uh, at any given time. Yeah, and you're covering the full works from strategy through to production? Yeah, we don't do a lot of television broadcasting. I mean, we've uh, th- that's not really our wheelhouse uh, or our sweet spot, but uh, we do pretty much everything else. And I think as it relates to brand, I mean, that's, that's our core focus is uh, building the brand identity and managing the portfolio. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's a big job and I'm looking forward to getting tucked into that later on. But before we do that, as is traditional on Inside Jobs, I want to pop you in the way back machine, although I hesitate to say how far <laughs> way back we're going to go. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> uh, to, to, to the young Laurie. And uh, just curious, where what environment was were you growing up in, Laurie? Tell us tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's always a fun fact, I think, to start. I'm, I'm uh, number eight of nine kids. So I like, oh, that's a story. That's a right? podcast in its own right then, that story. Uh, yeah, so I like to say I was born into a team. I think the team construct is uh, <laughs> pretty comfortable for me. Um, but I was also part of the younger part, uh, and yet I'm, I'm told by my siblings I was fairly bossy. So uh, I think... Right. Uh, you kind of have to be to get noticed, <laughs> don't you? So, yeah. So that's, uh, I'm a native Southern Californian. Uh, I'm, I'm a transplant here in, in Louisville uh, with the job at Humana, uh, but I'm born and raised in California. Surf City is where my, what I call home, uh, Huntington Beach. Yeah. So you're a keen surfer? Oh gosh, no. But I, I am, uh, I wish that I were a surfer. I think I tried when I was younger, but getting up on that board and the upper body strength required to do the paddling uh, didn't prove to be uh, my strength. So what was your strength when you were growing up then? Uh, well, I was obviously very artistic as a kid. Um, I, I was in musical theater. I thought that was going to actually be my purpose in life was uh, to sing and perform on the stage. And then I found graphic design and 
uh, my plans changed, but that was that was the original intention. Well, Southern California and performance. I mean, it's Hollywood surely beckoned, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was actually more drawn to the theater aspects of it, even though I ended up uh, in entertainment with uh, with Disney. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, for the passion for performing and creating, I think was was ingrained at a very young age. Yeah, again, probably as a result of coming from a large family, I would think. Isn't yeah, it? both my parents were pretty artistic. I mean, my mom was a great painter. My dad could build anything with his hands. So I was I was profoundly influ- influenced by that, um, for sure. And what, what did they do, just out of curiosity, to sustain such a large family? You know, I think they believe that um, they like to keep us busy. There's a lot of crazy projects, um, creative projects. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, full-blown haunted houses and Fourth of July floats and just crazy wow. stuff um, that normal people don't do. But I didn't know that that was not normal. That was just part of the the normal way that we did. But my mom always used to say, you know, she knew where we were. We were out in the garage. We were building something. We had most of the neighborhood hung out at, at our place uh, for those types of, you know, fun experiences, I guess. Well, every family is weird, and it's not until you get acquainted with other families you realize how weird your own is, I must yeah. say. And I'm speaking from experience here. 100%. So, so you, had, you had this artistic leaning early on, and you went to college and studied design, did you? Or art? I or did. you wanted to be a fine artist? Or, or what? What was the direction you, you thought you'd strike off? Yeah, in? you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I applied to Art Center, I was an Art Center uh, graduate in Pasadena, California. I thought I would be an illustrator. I mean, I grew up wanting to draw, you know, animated characters. And uh, I think that was really the first time I'd heard about graphic design, and they they pointed me in that direction, and that's the that's the path I ultimately took. I was a graphics and packaging designer. Uh, I graduated with a degree in, in both uh, from Art Center. Mm-hmm. Right, right, okay. So what was uh, so packaging as well? So what was this? Just because you were steered in that direction, or you were? were you, did you have your sights set on anything? I did. I mean, oddly enough, I didn't end up in a career that and that started in packaging. But I've always loved the dimensional aspects of design, and uh, I tap into that all the time. I think just learning how to design in uh, three dimensions and uh, you know, looking at the experience from multiple angles. Uh, that's something that I still do every day. And uh, so you're an admirer of the supermarket shelving and the, I, yeah. uh, the contents there. Yeah, and the psychology yeah. of where things are placed. And uh, yeah, I still really, really enjoy uh, packaging and, and all kinds of, uh, you know, dimensional design. I think it's it's uh, quite fun. Well, I think it, now is a super exciting time in packaging as well, but given given the effort to reduce waste, given the efforts to either not use plastic or use appropriate plastics, and there, there's massive challenges for the creatives there yeah. now. This is an exciting time for sure. So you're, the early part of your career, you, you seem to have mostly gone kind of freelance, really, working for a number of people. Was that was that, was that a useful experience for you? Yeah, I mean, right out of school, I, I, I landed my dream job right out of school. I mean, Saul Bass was one of the legendary pioneers of graphic design. And I thought I'd done and gotten ahead in there. And I got really good fundamental training in uh, brand expression and, uh, you know, really understanding how to build uh, standards from one of the individuals who pioneered uh, standards design. So, um, how, how did you get the role there then? How did that come? You no, know, that was one of the byproducts of uh, going to a fancy school. Uh, was yeah, they had connections, uh, eh? connections and they arranged an interview with some of the students there. So, was fortunate enough to get recommended for that interview and uh, landed that position. Cool. So, so you had a, a good apprenticeship. I there. did. I did. So, so what made you brave enough to strike out on your own? Well, I think 
You know, uh, oddly enough, I'm a, again, Southern California native and Southern and Northern California could largely be considered different states. Um, so I never really got into the LA uh, scene and I really wanted to get back down to Southern California and kind of explore what was down there. And so I ended up venturing out on my own and ended up in the reason, I would say the, uh, First aspect of the entertainment industry, I guess, would be the restaurant industry. And that was at a time when, again, kind of tapping into my packaging background, the uh, the structural design aspects of real estate collateral, surprisingly, um, was in its heyday. Point of sale, that yeah, kind this, of thing? Yeah, this was a point of sale um, brochures, but everything was quite structural and fancy, um, very different than it is today. But it was a super fun time, and I, and I ended up um, enjoying working for a lot of uh, key agencies out in, in the L.A. and Orange County area, and I really enjoyed the exploration of that. I think that it helped expose me to, like, what direction did I really want to take my career at that point. Didn't it feel quite brave, though, because you were quite young and, know. you know, newly out of college? <laughs> and, and looking, you know, looking back at the time, did you feel you were being brave? And looking back, did you... Were you brave? No, I think I was egotistical and arrogant. I think, you know, I was so young and I thought, well, you know, I can do this on my own. But, you know, honestly, when I got down to Orange County, I started interviewing around. And they're like, you should try venturing out on your own. And I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. And, and I did place uh, an ad in the prevailing industry standard book at the time called The Workbook. It was a digital experience with that now. But um, that ad really garnered me the, the rest of my career. That's how Disney found me. I did a couple of jobs for them. And then within a matter of months, uh, Disney kind of consumed my whole repertoire. And over the course of a few years, um, they finally convinced me to come full time. So, uh, you know, I think that was... Let's just, just, just dig, dig into that a little yeah. bit. So you placed an ad. Some person looking for somebody at Disney saw the ad they were they were looking for someone and you 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 ticked uh, by that time it sounds like you were ticking even though you were still quite young you you ticked a lot of boxes in terms of the the the, the areas of design you were comfortable in obviously this is pre-digital and you say that they then more or less consumed you so what, what how did that come about was it one person just kept using you or your name spread within Disney or what a little bit of both I think that um, you know the way that Disney was organized at the time was by properties. I don't know. I don't know how they do it today. But uh, I started working on their sports properties. So at the time they had gone through the acquisition of some of the sports brands. First they were partnering, and then later when I got when I was on staff, they actually acquired the ABC uh, and ESPN franchises, mm-hmm. um, and then the, the mm-hmm. sports teams. So the Anaheim Angels and the Anaheim Ducks. That all became part of a new portfolio. Well, I came on early on just because I was a, a good logo designer. And I think that's how they found me. The ad that I had placed was was largely that. I mean, it was almost 100% logos and a few packaging designs. So the consumer products division is the one that tapped me. And then yeah. once you're in there at Disney and you do a reasonable job, I guess, uh, they continue to call you back. Um, and, you know, their work is so expansive. It, there's never there's a never never ending supply of, uh, things to be done there. So, and did you did you learn anything as a as a freelancer about how to make sure that uh, you know people had your phone number or email address now in a company like that? Yeah, you know, honestly, again, this is the accidental tourist part of it. I, I probably should have been more intentional. I mean, you look back and you say, well, I, I might have wanted to work a little bit harder in a network, but I I guess I've just always been so focused on the work. And for mm. me, it's uh, you know trying to show up in ways that. Uh, make you valuable. I think just 
just uh, lending yourself to the task in hand. And that has served me well. I don't know if it's the right way to go, but it's served me particularly well. I'm really passionate about what I do, and I really like to dig in to a project. I like to call myself an immersive designer. So, you know, when I came in, I knew nothing about consumer products. I knew nothing about retail. And I learned a lot on the job, for sure. But I also uh, was, you know, just kind of insatiably curious. I think at the time, you know, Disney was great because everyone there was talented. And it was it was a little bit like an extension of my experience at Art Center, where you're just surrounded by a lot of really awesome, creative people. And, you know, so you want to continue to do your best. It's a little bit competitive. It's a little bit of a diva thunderdome at the same time. Uh, largely just an, an amazing growth experience for me. And the company was growing. I mean, most people think of Disney, they think Mickey Mouse or the Fab Five or they think who. I did too. And I thought, wow, that's what I really want to work on. But I started my journey with some of these what I would call new brand initiatives for them. They were tapping into new segments, uh, new audiences. I think their their audience segment is largely girl-focused. And at the time, they were exploring preteen um, versus the, you know, more the toddler. Three to eight was sort of their sweet spot. Three to eight-year-old girls. So, you know, they were exploring boys. They were into sports. There was a lot of things that they were trying to see how far the brand could stretch and in what ways it would be a good fit. And I ended up kind of being the techie, edgy boy uh, person and uh, work on a lot of the early properties uh, for uh, Gargoyles was one of the key properties that I did freelance and then ultimately got hired on to um, expand that standard and that style guide uh, for that particular TV property. So, but in the end, uh, you certainly weren't working for free because you got a job there and you ended up as creative director at Walt Yeah, Disney? I started as a design manager and then a design director and then a creative director in, in short order. And, uh, you know, I got into some different market segments. I got into more classic brands, the Mickey and the Pooh. But again, you know, kind of carving out new directions with preteen and new expressions of those characters, I think was really one of the highlights of um, my time there. Along with, uh, you know, adults, how can you make more wearable merchandise uh, for for adults? So those were things that I think were, were new for me. So I'm always always curious about things where I can uh, uh, have something to give and have something to learn. Those are really um, attractive experiences for me. And they've always pulled me in. The gravitational pull of that is is how I've really made the choices in my career. Disney's famously prescriptive when it comes to how the brand is expressed. And as a creative person, did you find that um, challenging or did you find that helpful? I think it's it's important. I think the in order to maintain the integrity of the characters and the brand, you have to have a fair amount of rigor. But I also was in the role and in the brands that I was leading, I had to press the envelope. So I had quite a few conversations um negotiations if you'll call it that uh with with corporate and legal to help them understand you know how do we maintain the trademarks i mean at the end of the day some of the work we were doing in preteen for example was pretty progressive at the time and uh you know characters were unrecognizable but you know my job was just to kind of explore the realm and uh you know work through the channels internally to get the approvals and get the buy in uh, on the strategy and you know from, from an audience point of view. So, you know, at the time, Paul Frank was really, really huge. A lot of the Japanese character animations were also a huge influence with 
the direction that we put chicken in the preteen market. But you were creating new things. You weren't necessarily adapting existing things and uh, you wouldn't be messing around with Mickey now, would you? <laughs> well, we actually did. I mean, some of those characterizations what? were, yeah, it was Mickey and... These are people's childhoods you're, you're messing oh, with. Oh, yeah, here. No, it was fun. It was fun to do a lot of stylized characters uh, for, the, for the product. I think that's one way to keep the product fresh. Uh, rather than yeah, just putting yeah. the traditional Mickey in a in a uh, a new pose or a new construct, I think it was uh, we had a lot of fun. I think exploring the boundaries of uh, what the characters, what are the essential elements, the art of reduction. That's one of the things I learned at Saul Bass that carried over um, has carried me through. It's like the art of reduction. How much can you simplify that character and still retain its trademark elements so that people recognize it and and relate to it at there at walt disney for five or six years i guess um tell me what happened in the early 2000s that made you leave and and you know were you being an accidental tourist or did you have a sense of kind of where you wanted to go i think there was a, a tremendous amount of change in my six years on staff and three years prior um on on pretty much a full-time contract basis with them uh, I think I needed I needed to get closer to the work. I think in, you know you're managing a very large team and a huge portfolio of brands. Um, I was still fairly young in my career, and I just wanted to get more connected uh, back to the work. As they were going through a ton of um, organizational change, uh, it was the time uh, Michael Eisner uh, was still at the helm of the company, and I think they'd gone through a lot of dramatic transformations. So I had had one too many, I, I think, leadership swings, and I wanted to see, you know, if I could kind of catch my breath a little bit. And they called me back to work on on a contract basis. And, and so that continued for a couple of years. Um, and then I, I got another phone call from another Disney colleague connection that led me to my partner to have a conversation with my partner for become brand strata. And uh, I think we were like-minded. Uh, he may. So this was, this was you launching a business. Was, then. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the two of us originally started at a, a local company called Graphico that was trying to build their in-house team uh, early on. And then uh, we, we ultimately uh, separated and turned uh, the creative component into a, a company called Brand Strata. And did you have a kind of clear image of a clear vision, sorry, of what it was you were trying to do at Brand Strata when you kicked off in 2003? Yeah, you know, it's funny. The influence of Saul Bass uh, for me as a young designer, I think, was was profound because I think for me, I really wanted to capture that. I wanted my shot at that, I think. Um, where and, and the magic of that was I would see his consultative ability. So I wanted to get closer to the CEOs and to the leaders of the organization, give them advice and counsel. Um, and I think just really kind of a hybrid of, of the journey I'd taken so far on, on my career. And I, that led us into a relatively new area or an emerging area of brand in municipalities and cities and doing city branding. Uh, so for a while, I, we, I mean, Brand Strata ended up focusing on cities and ports and universities, so a lot of public infrastructure and helping them build their brands like you would do for consumers, uh, but translating it in a way that um, was helping them uh, with resident, you know, retention, um, to build community, to do a lot of different things. So I think it was an interesting stretch for me, I think, to, to go in that direction. Um, but I think it was really interesting. I think that I, I think my experience with Brent Strata really got me to a place where, you know, getting in that stakeholder approval and people who are not uh, creative is not their profession. Right. So you have to take it through 
and speak in their language and help them understand, make those connection points. That's something I still do today. I think stakeholders in very large corporations, you've got to get that stakeholder buy-in in order to move things forward and to build brand ambassadors from the inside out. Yeah, well, you so you, you felt, so you said somewhat constrained there, and I, wait for this because it's just occurred to me. So you decided to spread your wings and, and go to Boeing. Yeah. Did, did you like that? That was just so, it just occurred to me. I give myself a medal for that, yeah. for that little um, segue. Uh, but seriously, that, how did that happen? What happened to Brand Strata? And, uh, and Boeing was a bit of a departure. I mean, it's not exactly Disney. Yeah. I mean, again, I think the opportunity emerged. And again, I have, it's also served me well. I think the curiosity leads me to some strange places. And in this case, it was a call that uh, an opportunity with Boeing came up. They were trying to build their in-house agency. And at the time for me, the brand strata, as I mentioned, while we had built a a small team, it was I I was largely using a network of uh, suppliers and freelancers to execute the work. So it's it's just a very different experience. but yeah, Boeing was a pretty hard pivot. But the thing that is constant through all of these is I think the, the recognizable brands, and they were all at various um, stages of development. For Boeing, what was fascinating to me was as I've been a student of brands, I continue to be a student of brands. Very few brands last, um, don't last a hundred years or more. And they were, they were coming up on this hundred year uh, milestone, and I thought, wow, this would be a really interesting opportunity to help re- vi- reinvigorate this brand from the inside out. And Boeing, I think, you know, I think the the challenge within building that in-house team was that, you know, I mean, you're in a you're in a company of engineers that that is, you know, Disney is a creative culture building creative content. That's all they do. That's the product that they sell. That's what they do. But in at Boeing, it's an engineering culture. And I think so to build a creative environment and build a creative culture inside of that environment um, was was the number one of the number one challenges that we faced. So I think in the discussion about what they were facing and what they were trying to do, once again, I thought, well, I think I have something to offer and can help this situation. And I have probably something to learn. I've never been in aerospace. Uh, it's been a while since I've been back in the corporate world. So this, it, it proved to be a good fit. Yeah, well, sounds, I mean, the products are definitely a lot of fun. So big, uh, big creative team, though, that you were managing, and it was across multiple offices as well. How did that, how did you take to that? And what, what, what did you need to learn that you hadn't already learned? Well, that's a great question. I think um, the remote situation and I think managing mul- creative people in multiple offices was certainly something I'd never done before. So that wasn't something that I had had to deal with before. So how do you motivate people? How do you help them feel connected? Uh, those were some things that we were really trying to grapple with. And we were going through a tremendous amount of organizational change. The, they had already... Um, you know, started to really, really define the the team that they needed to build. And, uh, you know, I think just uh, the reductions in force, there was a lot of change management that we had to deal with. So I think that was, you know, dealing with that massive scale of organizational change was a huge part of of that journey with, with Boeing. And were they helpful and supportive of you or did you kind of have to figure it out as you were, as you were going along? Oh, no, I didn't feel alone. I mean, I had a great, I had an awesome team. Um, uh, we had a leader who had a really strong vision and 
you know, a, a real champion of the in-house um, model. Uh, and, and certainly Boeing has huge infrastructure in, you know, HR and uh, support mechanisms to kind of get through the change management. But yeah, there's a ton of support. I think that's one of the, the key benefits um, inside of a corporate structure, whether it's Disney or Boeing or Humana. I think that's the one of the real benefits is you have a lot of subject matter experts um, and the, the key is trying to find them, cultivate them, building those relationships, building the collaborative, you know, uh, relationships in the organization so that you can get these very large, ambitious ideas executed. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's also, but on the downside, there is a lot of, uh, often, I'm not saying here, but often a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of kind of fixed ways, fixed ideas that you have to, you have to work through as well to get to your desired objective, right? Oh, yeah. That can, I mean, you know, that's, that's the, I think, the, the, the practical reality of living inside of a corporate culture. They're all similar in nature. They get big and it's hard to pivot, right? It's hard to turn fast when you're um, a very uh, large organization. And it's, easy to get very siloed because you're so large, right? You've got a lot of things to do. So I think that's one of the the kind of the commonalities between the three experiences is, you know, looking at those silos, how do you break them down uh, beyond structure? Because structure, while it's, you know, can be useful in uh, change management and building organizational culture, it can also be disruptive and destructive. Um, and I think that that is something that I'm always mindful of and sort of lear- learning from those experiences to say how fast do you make the change and how do you get people through the change is a huge part of uh, leading an in-house team because there's always going to be large sweeping changes in a very large company and and helping people understand that context and where it fits and how they can how and why they can support it yeah management moves in mysterious ways in corporations sometimes and it's uh it, it, it's hard to it's hard to understand. Going back to what we said earlier, if you're if you're not there and having conversations with them all the time, it's hard to understand why they make the decisions they do. But given all of that, uh, you clearly had a successful time at Boeing. You you say you helped create the in-house agency, but you also managed to change their development processes along the way as well. Um, I. The development process, tell me more about that. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, in, t- in terms of their design thinking, oh. uh, methodologies, agile methodologies, yeah, that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, design thinking, we, uh, we all got certified. At, well, by this time, uh, we'd had a few uh, creative directors added to our roster. That was one thing that was a big change, uh, was building a formal creative structure. We had. And this was you making the pattern for this and, and the template and saying, this is how it's going to have to be? Uh well, I hate to sit, take sole credit for anything. You always work as part of a team. But but yes. <laughs> well, my role, my focus was creative, like building the creative team, elevating the creative, finding the individuals. And one of the individuals that we had on the team um, had started to explore uh, design thinking. And we found it to be successful in some projects that were particularly challenging with some particularly challenging stakeholders in bringing them together quicker, getting everyone aligned and coming out of that experience with better creative outcomes and just a a better overall uh, creative experience for all involved. Um, So that's that learning led us to say, okay, let's Let's train everyone in this methodology and let's adopt this methodology formally um, as we go through these project development cycles to get this stakeholder engagement sooner so that we can reduce the iterations on the back end. And I think that, you know, adopting that methodology. So there was was an objective then. It was this iterations on the back end bit that was the that was the kind of problem that you were trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, there can be 
see a lot of churn on the in-house team. I mean, people look at you like you're free, and I like to say we're we're not free. We we are a very expensive line item um, in a corporate budget, so we have to be mindful of the value that we provide. So I think it's important um, to continually try to scrutinize what are you working on? Is it high value? Is it the right thing? I think that's one of the hardest things inside uh, the organization. It's not the work. Work volume. I mean, I've been on the opposite end of that where, you know, I'm a consultant or a freelancer and the huge swings in the volume of work can be your problem. Um, that's not the problem in-house. There's a steady stream of work all the time. So, uh, you know, I think it's really just kind of taking a pause, pulling up and taking a look and saying, okay, is this the right thing that we should be working on right now? Is this the highest priority going to add value to uh, what the company's priorities are? And how do we aid in that effort? And is it important to show the company what you're doing and show the value all the time? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've found the secret formula for that yet, but I think exposure and visibility to what the team is doing is is critical. And I think helping them understand the difference between someone who can just be a pair of hands and operate a computer and someone who's really going to add value to the conversation. They're going to really know the business. I think the business and brand acumen is what we is the true value that we provide as an in-house team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But of course, uh, I, I certainly speaking from experience where I'm seeing lot of changes taking place with some in-house agencies and and those that seem to be riding out the changes are those who've ensured that management see the value of what they're doing financial value frankly yeah. more than anything yeah. else on a regular basis well uh that was a big job you had at, at boeing and you were there t- uh, till as you said just a couple of years ago uh what inspired the, the change and you were in you're in california there you're in la there right? yeah i mean that one was great i was in huntington beach i was living in huntington beach i was in southern california could not could not have been better but humana that this one was a cold call from a recruiter and you know i think that um uh, you know for again that curiosity uh, is always my persistent friend and so, you know, I took the call and I had a lovely conversation with this recruiter and, uh, you know, he said, I'm going to call you back and, and we'll, I want to see if we can talk to uh, uh, our SVP, who's now our CMO. And she was just lovely. It was just, you know, it just, sometimes I think you just know through the conversation that this is something that uh, is going to be a good fit. And it proved to be that. So here I am. So it seems that uh, from what you told me earlier, that the Humana job Humana, Humana job was really kind of almost like everything you'd been doing up to that point pointed to this. Is yeah, that right? I, yeah, I can't even begin to say I've I've used every tool in my arsenal here at this at this job at Humana. I think I think first, you know, one of the stark differences between um, Boeing and Humana was, you know, Humana is largely an organization built around the communications. Uh, team. And what one of the things that was hugely appealing to me was really getting back to more of my Disney roots, which was working with the marketing team. And really, uh, you know, because I think marketing inherently understands the value of creative. Now you just have to kind of talk through the value of creative in, in-house. And I think working uh, a model, I think, you know, my first job really coming in was when I spoke with Jennifer, her CMO, she's like, I think we have a great team. I don't, you know, let's see what we can do with it next. And I think it was really just saying, look, there's a, a good foundation here. I think we've got some good talent. Um, they're relatively um, young in their career. 
and uh, you know what direction and how much can we do? How much can we offset our reliance on external agencies? And uh, you know how can we build the brand muscle on the inside? And uh, it, they've largely, my team's been really incredible. And I think that uh, you know they've really gravitated towards you know being at the center of this agency ecosystem and working collaboratively to build the brand. And collaboratively with with internal stakeholders, but also external agencies. Yeah, as well. yeah. I mean, I think that's that's been a journey. It continues to be a journey. We had a pretty hefty roster of agencies. Certainly, we have an agency of record um, in Mullen Low now. But we have, I, I think, worked out a pretty. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's a a, a replicatable model, but I think the the intention is that. There are, I, I think there's going to need to be an ecosystem. I mean, Disney used an ecosystem of agencies as well. I think that uh, there's a time and a place, I think, for all the skill sets. And as I said, there's a, there's a never-ending stream of work. So it's really just more, I think, the bigger battle to fight is not who does the work, but it is, uh, you know, making sure that the work looks like it came from the same place, that it speaks from the same brand voice and delivers the same kind of brand and that, experience. And that's your responsibility, would you say, then? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, collaboratively. Governance. I mean, yeah, it's the brand governance side of it is is the brand management side of what I do. My Delivered through my team. So I've structured my team around the business. And we've got like 18 different lines of business that we support. And their job is to get smart about the business and the brand translation for that business. And that model has worked um, pretty well, I think, for us. And with each of those lines of businesses, each of them also has an agency that they like to work with uh, based on the audience they're talking to or, or based on the delivery mechanism, the channels that they're trying to activate. So again, tapping into subject matter expertise, whether it's inside or outside, um, really doesn't matter to me. I, I take an agency agnostic approach. I happen to run the in-house agency here at Humana, but uh, the agency agnostic view, I think, is the only way you can take it because I think you've really got to put the brand at the center and, and not who's, you know, the battle between who's doing the work. Yeah. So often in corporates, of course, the, the departmental leaders think that the company revolves around them, I guess. And uh, what you're trying to do is say, no, it revolves around the brand. We're all there in the service of the brand and, and trying to help. And, and and so understanding your role to play in that, your unique role to play, seems to be quite straightforward to you in terms of the fact that it revolves around governance. Yeah. I mean, I think I my team would probably tell you the first first or second month I was there, I put up two words on the screen. It was brand expression and brand management. And that was a fairly new concept. The brand expression they got, right? We've been doing that pretty much our whole careers. We we do, we execute creative. Um, but the brand management side, I think, took a lot of different flavors, even, the, even over the course of just the two and a half years that I've been here. Um, because I think the strength of the team um, and their focus on brand, I think, has grown and gotten a lot stronger over the last uh, couple of years. So I think that, you know, it took a little bit of time, I think, to help them understand. Um, yes, it's in building brand standards. But for me, I have always looked at brand standards as the outcome, not the roadmap. And that's probably a different philosophy from, I know it is, from a lot of different my branding colleagues. Like, you know, in the early days of Saul Bass, it was like you create the guide and everybody follows the guide. I do it in reverse. And that was uh, a byproduct of what I learned at uh, Disney, even though they, you know, they created their style guides, but they, they created their style guides mostly as inspiration. So somewhere between that inspiration and the instruction is, to me, the best is when you bring those two things 
together. And I think teaching the team, like, what does that mean? Um, where is it, does it need to be prescriptive? And where does it need to be flexible? Those are the things that I think only happen through conversation, particularly on the flexible side. Pretty easy to put the rigid rules out there, but inevitably people will deviate uh, because the rules don't apply to them. So I think yeah, that it's, well, it's better to uh, encourage flexibility. I think it's fascinating. So brand guidelines are not walls. They're, they're, a, they're actually a kind of springboard, a starting point um, for, for creative thinking to be applied is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think I always say there's a spec. I define it as a spectrum between fixed and flexible. And on the fixed side, of course, you have your color, you have your logo, you have your trademarked assets. Those should be rigidly controlled. And I think that those are the things that those are the traditional things that people understand. But when you get into the expression side of it, again, it should be audience based. And I think that having a corporate stamp on everything or having the corporation when you're trying to engage in a human conversation, humans are emotional. So I think the expressive range of the brand is really important. I think that's interesting because I think now you're mentioning it, I, I can think of brands, I won't mention them, but I can think of brands where they, they although they deal with me as a consumer, you can sense that their communications are a little rigid and a, and a little bit more about the brand guidelines and about how the message they're trying to get across to me. Whether that's, whether that's you know, kind of any paper documentation I get or the experience on the website and that kind of thing. I can see what you're yeah, saying. It's harder to manage for sure, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's much harder. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're much more into herding cats if you're, if you're going to allow this to happen, yeah. right? So herding cats in uh, in Kentucky, you're living there, I guess. Are you moved over there, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I, I like to say I'm bi-coastal here. I, I spend my time here in Louisville. I've got a home in Louisville and a home in Huntington Beach still. So I've got the best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And when you and when you're not uh, uh, AVP now, aren't you uh, there at Humana? When you're when you're not uh, AVPing, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no. Being creative. Uh, being creative. Uh, I, I must confess that my uh, you know my hidden passion now is Animal Crossing on the Nintendo Switch. I think I've fallen victim to the. Uh, oh, right. I think you say Animal Crossing. I had ideas of sort of strange kind of genetic <laughs> engineering going on or experimental breeding. But you're, no, this is a game, right? It's a game, and I think it taps into my passion for uh, building the Lego bricks meets my uh, gingerbread architect roots. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I think the creativity, it's, it's been a way to connect with family through the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're on the uh, on the on the backslope of the pandemic now. It's been quite a journey for everybody. And uh, well, not least for you, because, um, well, yeah, well, I guess, no, you started there early 2019. So you had a year under your belt before before it all struck, right? Yeah. But I, I think that one of the most profound things is the transition my team had to make. I mean, I, I moved to Louisville because my team was 100 percent co-located in, in Louisville. And they, we had to make that, you know, rapid shift like everyone else to figure out how we were going to collaborate and be creative um, with a team that, that had never done that before. So I give them a, a huge amount of credit for their resiliency and their adaptability. Uh, and they were able to figure out um, great ways to collaborate and be creative. Uh, remotely. Here's to getting the best of all worlds as we move forward. You know, we've all learned to work from home and seen the benefits of that, but I know people are busting a nut to get back into uh, being with each other as well. So Yeah, for sure. Are you are you a reader, Laurie, or do you listen to music? I listen to music. I'm pretty much an avid concert junkie. I, I miss that the most, I think, from the pandemic. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Who do you like to go and see? Uh, I, I One of my favorites is Pink. That's one, probably one of my all-time favorites. Right, right. So, okay, all right. So that's kind of uh, yeah, edgy, edgy. It's rock, right? <laughs> it's rock, yeah. 
that's okay. That's okay. I accept that. That's fine. That's a good answer. All right. Well, uh, Laurie, before we sign off, um, I know a lot of people, because uh, I know from experience, uh, uh, will be interested to learn more, maybe connect with you. Is LinkedIn the best place for them yeah, to do that? Yeah, that's, that's a great way for me to connect. I'm always happy uh, to to connect with folks there. All right. And it's always interesting to hear how someone who started out as a creative illustrator ends up managing these uh, monumental teams for world-famous brands. It's a, it's a fantastic journey. Laurie, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's been uh, great to connect, Robert. Also, I must thank you, the dear listener, for joining us today. Laurie seemed to me to be a bit of a disruptor, but one that can do disruption in a diplomatic and constructive way. Her key attributes seem to be curiosity, which she herself mentioned several times. Now, she certainly seems to have found her home at Humana, and I look forward to seeing her team's good work well into the future. Emily Foster of our esteemed partners I have and my producer Amy McNamara have my undying gratitude for making these podcasts happen. Also, Prana Chabra at EKCS for handling the podcast editing so patiently and magnificently. If you're new to Inside Jobs, then a very warm welcome to you. If you visit our website at ijpodcast.com, you'll find more great interviews in our ever-growing back catalogue of episodes. Till next time. Hey, hey.